As I said before, my name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It's my honor and privilege to be here with you again. I wish it was under better circumstances, but I know all of our prayers are with Stan uh, this weekend, and we look forward to having him back. Uh, what he doesn't know is when he comes back, I'll say, you owe me one. Uh, it's always nice when I can say that to Stan because it's not very frequent. Um, we are continuing, actually we, we are closing today our sermon series called Then and Now that we've been engaged in for seven weeks now. Uh, the first three weeks of this series we talked about the history of this local church and how these sort of moments from our past have come to shape not only who we were and not only who we are today but who we are becoming in the future. In the last four weeks we've talked about how do we get this message that we are all unified around, loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. How do we get this message out into our communities effectively? How do we witness to a God whose love we know so well out in a world that may not know his love at all? The first three weeks of this, I've been talking with you all about evangelism, why we do it, how we should do it, how we should not be doing it. Today, I want to try and put a bow on this whole sermon series altogether. I want to start by telling you that Reagan's uncle is building us a dining table. I should back up a little bit. We went looking for a house about four or five months ago. We were ready to move. And so we began the wonderful chore of house hunting, the great trial that marriages get put through from time to time. Yes? Any married couples? Amen? It's not fun. It's not fun. The, I knew when we were looking for a house that one thing we absolutely had to have was a dining room. Not because I want a dining room, because my wife Reagan needs a dining room. In marriages, I feel like great marriages have what I call positive tension in them. Married couples, you might be nodding along to, you might know what I'm talking about. Positive tension, what I mean by that is great relationships, great marriages that I see, they, the couples are aligned and really you know, core, deep, fundamental ways, but then they're also very different in powerful ways, sometimes hilarious ways, yes? Positive tension. It keeps things interesting. For instance, you might not know this about me, but I am an introvert. I, I know I stand up here and I can talk to hundreds of people and I have conversations all day, every day, but guys, it wears me out. I go home and I'm tired. And Reagan goes home and she's excited. And she's ready to talk to me finally. I'm thinking, are you crazy? How could you still want to talk? All of this part of our relationship, Reagan's the extroverted extrovert. I mean, she goes to a party and she's trying to figure out how to, how to be there as late as she can. And I go to a party and I'm looking for the exit, right? I'm trying to get out as soon as I can. For me, I don't understand the purpose of a dining table, really. I'd be just as happy eating my dinner in front of the TV, watching the news. Conversation doesn't have to be a part of food, you know. That's, it's not the important thing for me. But that's not true for Reagan. For Reagan, everything in life is made richer and fuller and greater through conversation and through people. And so when we're looking for a house, I'm keeping in mind that 
our old house didn't have a dining room, and that was soul-crushing for my wife. I mean, she wanted to have people over constantly, and we couldn't cram enough people into our little kitchen with our little table there, and it was just terrible for her because she couldn't invite the 27 people she wanted to. <laughs> so we were looking for a house with a good dining room, and we got one, kind of. We don't have a dining table. And some would say the dining table is the important part of the dining room. Without a dining table, it just becomes room, right? So her uncle is making us a dining table. We went up to Kansas City recently to visit with her family. Her uncle was there, and he was showing us the progress that he's been making. He is an excellent amateur woodworker. I mean, truly phenomenal. He could sell his stuff for a living, but he just does it for fun, and uh, it was incredible to see the detail that was going into this table, the decisions he was making, the things that he was really pouring over, because it was made clear to me that he understood what I did was that we're going to have this table forever, hopefully. This is a table we could hand down to our kids. And I was thinking about this table, and what was astonishing to me was not how beautiful it was or, or not even thinking about how great it would look in the dining room, but I began to think about all the people who would gather around this table during the course of my life. And it was really kind of an impressive thought. And I thought, well, I'm so glad that he is the one making this for us. That's so special. And dining tables are important. A lot of life happens around the dining table. And that's true today, and it was true in the Bible as well. In Jesus' ministry, some of the most important things we are witness to happen around a dining table. Lives are changed around a dining table. One of those lives that has changed is the life of a man named Zacchaeus. His story comes to us only in the Gospel of Luke. And I'm sure many of us have heard the Zacchaeus story probably many times. If you've been a member at Lover's Lane for a while, you know, even if you went back, any Tom Ship members in the room today, Tom Ship loved to preach about Zacchaeus. So it's a story we come back to again and again. You probably know that he was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, which meant that he was really good at taking money from his fellow countrymen. He would have been despised by the Jews living in Jericho because his job was to steal from them on behalf of the Roman government. Now, isn't that a life that you want to live? And on top of that, he was short, so he was an easy target and easy to make fun of. But it's at the dinner table his dinner table, where Jesus will encounter him and will change his life and the lives of Jericho in a major way. Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible translation, so it might sound a little bit different. Let's rise in body and spirit for the reading of the gospel this morning. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. 
Everyone who saw this grumbled. Ugh, they said. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is a son of Abraham. The human one came to seek and save the lost. The word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, this past weekend, as, as Donna reminded us, was Stan's uh, daughter's wedding, the wedding of Emily and JB. And it was like the wedding, especially for our staff. We were so excited to be there. It was a special moment for me. Uh, my daughter was the flower girl. She was one of two flower girls, but she was the flower girl. She's 18 months old, and she had this beautiful dress, and she made it all the way down the aisle in Ship Chapel without crying, without stumbling. It was amazing. She was the best flower girl ever, and I'll rent her out to you for a Saturday for 150 bucks. <laughs> it was special, too, because uh, my wife, Reagan, was offering a scripture reading in the ceremony, which I wish I could have seen, but... My daughter, after walking down the aisle, did not understand why she could not throw her bouncy ball in the sanctuary, and she grew very upset with me, and we had to go outside and watch Tarzan on my phone. <laughs> it was also a special day because I got to see Reverend Kay Eck officiate the ceremony, and Reverend Kay officiated my own wedding with Reagan, and so that was special, getting to see life come full circle as it does so many times. But it was also special because I knew at one point we would go to the reception. And I knew at the reception I would be doing something that I didn't want to do. But I do it every single time I go with my wife to a reception. I danced. <laughs> now, I don't know if you could tell from the opening of the sermon, but I am not a big dancer. Right? That doesn't, shouldn't come as a shock. I, I'm perfectly fine sitting and watching. Right? My wife, Reagan, she is a dancer. I mean, she's the one turning the lights on and getting the music going, saying, come on, guys, let's go. You know, she'd be out there all night if she could. She took dance lessons all the way growing up. She's taken them as an adult. She loves to dance. So I know when I go to a wedding reception, I am not getting out of it. I am going to have to get up and dance at some point. And let's be clear, you might not have guessed this either. I'm not a good dancer. I have three moves, and they're all terrible. Most of them I learned from my dad. One of them is this one right here. Anybody else? Dad's in the crowd. Hey, Dad. This is his favorite one. I'm a goober. I am so bad at dancing. In fact, when I get out there and dance with Reagan, invariably I have fun, and I let loose, and I do my goofy dance moves, and, and, and I know I look like a fool. And I'm just praying that no one has taken video. But I do it because I love her. And, and I do have fun when she drags me out there, even though I know that I look like a fool. Now, I'm willing to guess that most of us don't like looking like a fool, do we? Most of us don't want to look like a fool on an everyday basis. But I'm also willing to bet that you would look like a fool for someone you love. 
kind of like dancing like a clown at a wedding reception. You'd be willing to look like a fool for someone you love. Zacchaeus' story, it reminds me, it says that he runs over to the sycamore tree. We have to remember that guys back then, they wore these long robes and cloaks. And so he'd hike up his legs and he'd be running. It's a goofy symbol, right? Oh, my gosh, here. Oh, I got to go see Jesus. And then he gets to the tree. And what does he do next? He climbs it. Church, do I need to explain how the point of view shifts when a man in a robe climbs a tree? It's a little silly, but that's the point. Zacchaeus looks like a fool. And he's going to be made a mockery of by the community down below. But he doesn't care. He's ready to look like a fool because he is so in love with this savior, this prophet, this messiah, this man that he doesn't even know yet. And it makes me stop and it makes me wonder in my own life as I, as I witness to my faith, not only inside these walls but outside these walls, Am I willing to look like a fool for the sake of Jesus? Tom Shipp put it this way, the church ought to be up a tree and out on a limb. I think what he's saying is the church ought to be ready to look foolish for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus. Are we willing to go those places that no one else wants to go? Are we willing to talk to people that no one else wants to talk to, to listen to people that nobody else wants to listen to, to love people that nobody else wants to love? Here's the big one, church. Are you ready to be exposed? Don't take that literally. Are you ready to be exposed for the sake of who Jesus is? Am I ready to become that vulnerable the same way that Zacchaeus becomes vulnerable? Those are difficult questions. But they're questions we've got to wrestle with and we've got to find the yes to if we want to follow Christ. I also notice in the story of Zacchaeus that when he, it doesn't tell us the timing, but I imagine that his heart transformation takes place around the dinner table because Jesus says salvation has come to this household. I notice that when Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ, he does something unique in my opinion. A lot of times when people in the Gospels come to faith in Jesus, they, they have this proclamation of, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. I know that's you. They all talk about who Jesus is. But what Zacchaeus does, do you notice what he does? He says real quickly, Lord, right? He, he gets that out of the way, <laughs> Lord. And then he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. He doesn't just talk about who Jesus is. He talks about how Jesus has changed his life. I know your Lord. That's why this is, my, this is why my life is different because of who you are. This is the tangible expression of how your love and your power has changed me. Now that is a testimony. The tangible expression of how it's changed him. The way this comes about in Zacchaeus is he gives away his wealth that he's amassed over a lifetime. I mean, his purse was full and his purse strings were tight. And now he's drawn them wide open and he's showering them over the people of Jericho. What we're witnessing in the story of Zacchaeus is a story of reconciliation. And the power that Christ brings into our lives is a power of reconciliation. 
so that we can self-empty ourselves, so that we can offer up ourselves, so that those in our community who maybe we've hurt, maybe we've wronged, maybe we've benefited while they have not, how can we pour ourselves out so that they can be blessed by the power of Christ in our lives? Reconciliation sounds like fun, but it's difficult work. It's hard work. It requires humility. It requires self-giving and self-sacrifice. In addition to the letter that he wrote for us this morning, Stan has a statement that he'd like me to read. I think he's really missing the pulpit. (laughs) But on the subject of reconciliation, Stan wanted to address our church, given the events in Charlottesville and the conversations that have taken place since. And I think it's important for a church of our size and the different venues that we worship in to be united and hear our senior pastor's thoughts on these matters. If you do too, say amen. So I'd like to read his words for you now. Like Donna said, brevity is not his strength, but I'm thankful for his witness. He says, this letter is a pastoral response to the white supremacist gatherings and domestic terror attack in Charlottesville as well as the increasingly heated conversation around racism and Confederate memorials. First, I want to say that we must know and be thankful that we, through our mission and uplifting of our brand, loving all, have a message we have been given by the Holy Spirit to proclaim and live out. Friday, a week ago, I was on vacation but couldn't stay away from our children's musical created in his image. I got to see it too. It was beautiful. He says, I wish the whole world could have been there seeing and hearing our kids. Racially and culturally, our children were like a beautiful tapestry and both represented by their colorful presence and in their words of song. Their message was that we are all created as sisters and brothers in the image of God. The scene in Charlottesville last Friday evening deeply saddened me. The images of young white men carrying torches and Nazi flags Yelling racial epithets and white supremacist chants quite frankly disgusted me. As news broke on Saturday of a white supremacist driving his car through a crowd of protesters in an act of domestic terrorism, I was heartbroken. Not only for the family of 32-year-old Heather Heyer, who was killed, but also for the 19 persons injured. I was also saddened for the misguided haters and for our country, which continues to wrestle with the evils of racism, white supremacy, and violence. As the pastor of our diverse congregation and with deep East Texas roots, I've witnessed firsthand the realities of racism that are felt even today by women and men of color. Truth be known, few of us who are white can say that we have not engaged in racist thoughts and actions or benefited from a culture that favors some of us over others of color. What we witnessed in Charlottesville is racism in the extreme, which sadly goes on elsewhere in our country and in our greater world. We must stand against hate, whether it be extreme or moderate, even as we repent and pray that God will perfect us in love and get rid of any racist thought or tendency. I'm not there yet. Are you? Through a vote of its city council, Charlottesville moved to relocate a statue honoring the Confederate General Robert E. Lee and to rename a park that bore his name to be Emancipation Park. Many other cities, including Dallas, are finding statues of persons representing the cruel and deadly civil war of 150 years ago becoming the focus of controversy. More city councils will be voting to move, sell, or even destroy such statues. As I mentioned, 
There is to be a protest in this city and a rally against racism. I am definitely in favor for a rally against racism, and I'm concerned that focus on statues can become a deterrent from the deeper problem, which is not primarily the hot-button statues, but the racism that for many they represent. It, could be tr it would be tragic to me if we thought that the removal of Confederate statues will make everything right and good and godly. Let us not be deceived. Issues of race relations, hate, and harm are much bigger and deeper than the largest General Lee statue in the land. Even as the racists, Nazis, and white supremacists gathered in Charlottesville, they did so under the guise that they were protest protesting the removal of a statue. They were not. It was a rally packed with agenda. They said they were protesting out of love for their country, but were they? I doubt it. They gathered out of deep hatred for our black, brown, and Jewish brothers and sisters. They gathered to show power and inspire fear and violence in Charlottesville and cities all across our country. Dallas is one of many cities facing the issue of what to do with Confederate memorials and legacy names throughout our parks, buildings, schools, and other public places. I want to say that history is of incredible value to any country that wishes to learn from its past mistakes and successes. But what some may see as somber memorial Others see as revisionist celebration of a dark time in our past. Some have elevated these statues to a position of idolatry, and we ought to remember that as U.S. citizens, the only flag that unites is not the stars and bars, but the 50 stars and 13 stripes of old glory. And the only monument that we gather around as Christians is that of the cross of Christ. My mentor used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus. In other words, everyone, all are those for whom Christ died and offered his redeeming love. Inclusion and acceptance was not an idea that we came up with, but one that God invented and punctuated with the cross. While we find a way forward as a city to both remember our history in a proper light and create a city today that is welcoming to all who call Dallas home, I want to remind us that the statues are not in and of themselves the larger disease of racism. We must not be satisfied with simply moving monuments to museums or even beating them into rubble. We must work tirelessly to continue bridging the divides that weaken us as a greater Dallas community. At Lover's Lane, we will continue to seek reconciliation. We have one of the most diverse congregations in our denomination, and yet we have a horizon dream of not simply being diverse, but becoming a sacred blend of all God's children as we, side by side and hand in hand, do mission and ministry, worship and celebrate, break bread together and fellowship around tables that are extensions of the Lord's table at which all are welcome. Let us hold fast to this dream. Let us pray fervently for God's spirit to continue his work in us. And let us stand boldly for rec racial reconciliation, not only at Lover's Lane, but throughout this city and the world. Those words are challenging for us this morning, but they're important for us. We'll be engaged in conversations as a city, as a community, around what to do with our history and the visibility of it, and how to honor and protect not only what has happened in the past, but who we call fellow citizens today as well. What I hear Stan saying for me personally is that regardless the outcome of this citywide debate, whether the outcome is something that we hope for and dream for or something that we don't, the, the reality is we have a lot of work to do in healing the wounds of racism in our country that, if last week was an indication, have become reopened as they do 
time and time again. And I'm reminded in the story of Zacchaeus that I cannot ask for the power of Christ in my life and run from reconciliation. It simply is not possible. I cannot pray to Jesus and ask him to come into my life and to heal my wounds if I'm not willing to heal the wounds of people around me. The power of Jesus Christ always comes with a power seeking reconciliation. Let that be our work here at Lover's Lane. The last thing that I notice in the story of Zacchaeus is the city of Jericho. They, they grumble, it says. You can almost hear it. right? Now. Let's hear it as a sanctuary. Let's become Jericho for a second. You're watching Zacchaeus go to the table of Jesus. What do you say? That's good. I think you guys are hangry. I can hear them groaning. And what's amazing to me is this is never explicitly pointed out, but, but it jumped out of the page to me this past week. I realized these same people in Jericho who are groaning, Ugh, they're probably thinking, that's Zacchaeus. He just stole 20 bucks from me last week. How in the world is Jesus inviting him to dinner? Actually, Jesus invites himself over for dinner. Only Jesus can do that. How can he do that? What they don't realize is this same dinner, this same salvation that occurs around a dinner table is going to lead to Zacchaeus ripping open his purse strings and showering the city in the wealth that he's acquired. The same people who are grumbling are about to receive a blessing from this man that they hate so much. It makes me think about all the times that I've groaned watching God invite someone to the table that I, if I'm being honest, I wish they weren't there. Who's in your mind? Who are the people that you would really rather not have a seat at the table? Reagan's uncle is building us a dining table. She is a woman that has a lot of opinions, and I love that about her because I don't have a ton of opinions about much. <laughs> I figured when he was making the table, she would give him a laundry list of specifications. I want it this big and this big. I want this kind of wood. I want this kind of design. I want this, you know, none of that. She had none of that. Everything he said, she said, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. I'd like that. She had one request, only one thing that she knew she wanted. She said, I want the table to have a leaf. She said, I want it to be one of those tables that you can pull apart and bring out more table and make it a bigger table so I can have more food and more chairs and more friends. I want a table that becomes more table. If I was designing a table, it'd be a TV tray. It'd be a table for one. But that's not the table that Reagan wants. And you know what? I don't think that's the table that we need as a family. I think the table that we need is the table that Reagan's asked for, a table with a leaf. And it makes me think about our own church's history. And here we come full circle again. We started this series talking about Tom Ship as a young boy, seeing the table pulled wide and a leaf placed in for him. A man at his church fought for his right to have communion. He heard this man say, it's not your table, and those words rang in his head. So when he took over Lover's Lane in 1945 as the first full-time senior pastor, he pulled apart the table and he put in a leaf. He said, I want alcoholics to have a seat at the table. 
And then in 1961, he pulled apart the table and he put in a leaf and he said, I want people of color to have a seat at the table, this church in Preston Hollow. And then later in our history, as we know more recently, we've pulled apart the table, we've put in a leaf, we say, we want refugees to have a seat at the table. And we pulled apart the table and we put another leaf and we say, we want LGBT members of our community to have a seat at the table. We pull it apart and we say, we want homeless people to have a seat at the table. And whether you know it or not, at some point that table was pulled apart and a leaf was put in so that you could have a seat at the table. So why should we stop? If it was up to me, it'd be a TV tray, and I'm so glad it's not my table. I'm so glad the table behind me is the Lord's table, an open table, a table with more leaves than I even know. And our challenge as people who evangelize, who witness to the love of God in the world around us, is to not run from our history, but to seize it and claim it. And to go into our world and to pull apart the table and to find leaves everywhere we can and to say, you have a seat at the table. You have a seat at the table. Amen.